Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Happy New Year, everyone. We are taking January off for a much-needed break, so to make sure you aren't without content, we thought we would release a TNTC Plus episode from 2023 into our main feed. Please enjoy, and we will see you in February. Hello, everyone, and welcome to your exclusive TNTC Plus bonus episode. We've got another very interesting true crime case for you today, but first, we want to thank you for being here. We're very grateful that you've chosen to support True North True Crime in the sea, the sea of true crime podcasts out there. It means the world to us. As always, you can send case suggestions to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Please note that we do prioritize cases that are brought to us directly from family members of the victims or missing person or someone who is close to the case, but we welcome suggestions from all of our listeners. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So in this episode, we are talking about the notorious Ant Hill Kids, a cult that was based in the provinces of Quebec and Ontario. This cult started out just like many others with a charming, charismatic, and delusional man who had convinced himself and a handful of others that he was the Messiah and that Judgment Day was coming. However, the brutal and horrific abuse that this cult's followers would endure sets this story apart from others. With that being said, this episode's content warnings are graphic depictions of gore, abuse, rape, sexual violence, and crimes against children. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, court documents, as well as the 1993 book titled Savage Messiah, which was written by Paul Kayla and Ross Laver. This book is unfortunately no longer in print. Gordon Mangtelo was working as a welfare caseworker for the Simcoe County Department of Social Services in August of 1989. It was the morning of August 11th, a Friday, when among a pile of new applicants for welfare, one particular application stood out to him. The form belonged to a woman by the name of Giselle Tremblay, who was single, new to town, with no money or assets, and living in the residence of a cranky old lady whose address was very familiar to Gordon, as she acted as a landlady to those who were living off of welfare. The words, see as soon as possible, appeared on the application. So Gordon made his way to the house where he was introduced to a petite, very thin, but well-groomed and attractive woman. Immediately, it became evident to Gordon that this woman was not fluent in English and Gordon would need to try to communicate with her in French. Giselle was visibly frightened, so Gordon sat down beside her and pulled out the welfare application to go over some of the details with her. Gordon hadn't had to speak French since grade school, so he did his best to go over important things with Giselle, such as her age, her previous jobs, as well as her place of birth. When Giselle saw Gordon trying earnestly to communicate with her, he could see her relax. To Gordon, Giselle appeared like someone who had suffered abuse. She spoke vaguely when asked questions about her past. When Gordon asked her about her previous job experience, she said she had worked as a baker for a family member, specifically a cousin or brother-in-law. She also mentioned that she was single and had no children. 
Gordon had a feeling that Giselle was leaving a lot of information out, and his feeling was correct. When Gordon went back to his office after his meeting with Giselle, he looked up her name in the system, and up came someone with the exact same name. However, this person was collecting welfare in Newmarket, Ontario, a town just north of Toronto. So the next day, Gordon went back to talk to Giselle again, this time armed with the information that she was already collecting welfare out of Newmarket. Upon his arrival, Gordon could tell that Giselle was nervous, so he asked her if she'd like to go out to his vehicle to continue their conversation. Once seated in the car together, Gordon told Giselle that there was something he wanted to ask her. So he asked Giselle about being on welfare in Newmarket, and she explained that yes, she had been, but she had no money left and she had been living in a woman's shelter in Newmarket. Satisfied with this explanation, Gordon in the following week had secured a bachelor apartment for Giselle to live in, and he even assisted her with moving in. One afternoon, while Gordon was working around town, a fellow caseworker approached him and said he needed to call the office right away due to some sort of emergency. So Gordon made the phone call, and what he was told would catapult him into chaos he never could have imagined. Giselle, as it turned out, was a wanted woman, and it had something to do with a cult. There were multiple people involved and the cult members had scattered, but there was one man in particular that the authorities were desperate to get their hands on. There was a Canada-wide warrant out for him, and Giselle Tremblay, as it turned out, was his wife. And this wanted man had just chopped off another woman's arm with an axe. Giselle Tremblay grew up in a rural area of Quebec, but her home life wasn't idyllic. Giselle idolized her father, who was often away weeks at a time working in the Quebec wilderness as a diesel mechanic. Giselle detested her mother, who was a physically abusive woman, to her and to her older sister. Giselle looked forward more than anything to the moment her father would walk through the front door after weeks of being away in the bush. She would often crawl right up into his lap, where they would sit and embrace each other. No one made her feel quite as safe as her father could. It was one night during the Carnival a two-week winter festival in Quebec City where Giselle attended a dance at the Holiday Inn and noticed a man she considered to be good-looking, standing at the back of the ballroom. The man had a beard, looked older than her, had thinning hair, intense blue eyes, and was smoking a cigarette. On the table before him was a collection of hand-carved wood objects. The man approached the table that Giselle was seated at with some of his hand-carved wares in hand, when he smiled at her and let her know that the wooden mugs were usually $10 a piece, but a pretty girl like her could have one for $8. Giselle was initially put off by the man, but gradually over the course of the evening she warmed up to him. The two talked, and to Giselle, he seemed very intelligent, as he seemed to know a lot about a lot of different topics. Giselle recalls him being very easy to talk to, and at the end of the night the man invited Giselle back to his hotel room. Giselle declined his offer, but gave him her phone number. The date was Friday, February 13, 1976, and the man she had just met was named Rock Terrio. Rock Terrio grew up in the small town of Thetford Mines, Quebec. Born on May 16, 1947, Rock was a descendant of one of the oldest families in Canada. All of the Terrios in Canada can trace their lineage back to Jean and Perrine Terrio, who came from Poitou on the west coast of France and settled in the area presently known as Wolfville, Nova Scotia. And those who listen to our Guller Clan episode are familiar with Wolfville. And it's ironic that these two episodes both have ties to that region. Rock's parents, Hyacinth and Pierrette Terrio, were devout Catholics, and it was when Rock was six years old that the family made the move to the asbestos mining town of Thetford Mines. Described as a bright student that was eager to please at St. Anne's School, Rock from a young age was an intellectual type with a love of books and reading. However, Rock's father Hyacinth's passion in life was religion. He belonged to a Catholic offshoot group called the White Berets, which was founded in Canada in 1939. The White Berets campaigned for the conservative values in Catholicism and would go door to door in an effort to recruit new men into their fold. The group had a newspaper, both in French and English, which was often peppered with anti-Semitic teachings such as references to Jewish people as bankers and corrupt politicians who seek absolute world control. But more than anything, Hyacinth appreciated the values of the White Berets that offered refuge from the evil scourge of secularism and modern influences. 
Hyacinth was a proud Quebec nationalist and strict Catholic, and he promised himself that any children of his would learn to fear and respect God. Every Sunday, he'd gather his children to accompany him, going door-to-door, handing out white beret materials as well as a collection box. From a young age, Rock developed a profound aversion towards religion due to these experiences. He harbored resentment towards his father's religious convictions and felt ashamed to wear the white beret, which became a subject of relentless teasing by the children in his town. As a result, he developed a strong dislike for the Catholic Church, associating it with anguish and shame. But his father's religious teachings weren't the only source of pain growing up. The games Hyacinth would play with his children were also meant to toughen them up. Specifically, a game he called Bone. They would sit around their table wearing steel-toe boots and kick each other in the shins to see who could outlast the others. As mentioned, Rock was more of an intellectual from the start. This meant that as a kid, he wasn't one to get into physical altercations. Instead, Rock learned that he was a talented manipulator and could talk people into things. Whether or not Rock was abused as a child by his parents is up for debate. But as an adult, he didn't talk much about his childhood. And when he did, it was clear to whoever was listening that he was making up stories one of which involved him getting lost in the woods and coming across a mother bear and her cubs. He said that the mother bear rolled him over and cuddled him against her, and he spent the entire afternoon like that. However, Rock did tell people in his life that his father had beaten him frequently and locked him in the cellar of their home. He also mentioned that there was an event where his father punched him in his abdomen and pushed him down a long set of stairs, and that he was hospitalized for stomach ulcers. When Rock was 14 years old, he dropped out of high school and began picking up odd jobs around town, even though, in his own words, there was nothing Rock hated more than being told what to do by someone else. Throughout his teenage years, Rock's stomach problems persisted. He constantly complained about sharp, stabbing pains in his abdomen. When Rock was 23 years old, he endured a five-hour surgery at Sacré-Cœur Hospital in Montreal. The surgery removed an ulcer from the wall of his stomach and another 10-centimeter by 8-centimeter section of his stomach as well. However, later that same year, Rock's symptoms persisted and worsened and landed him back on the operating table. This time, the surgeon removed another small section of his stomach and also severed his gastric nerves. Unfortunately, this operation also seemed to make matters worse in the months afterwards, Rock was now vomiting and experiencing extreme pain, and his gastroenterologist told him that he was suffering from a rare disease called dumping syndrome, which can be caused by the severing of the gastric nerves and goes on to damage the stomach's ability to contract and therefore properly digest the food within it. Rock began to self-medicate with antacid pills and prescription painkillers. Those around him noticed that Rock was not the same person after these surgeries and described it as something having snapped inside of him. He developed an obsession with all things medical and convinced himself that he was slowly dying. He began telling people on the street that he was sick and had terminal cancer even though no such diagnosis had ever been given to him by a medical professional. But in Rock's mind, The fact that no doctor could find the cancer that was killing him only furthered his opinion that modern medicine was a farce and that he knew better. When Rock wasn't obsessing over his health, he was known to be quite the ladies' man. A born entertainer, Rock never struggled to attract admirers. He's constantly described as charismatic, magnetic, warm, and confident. On top of that, most considered Rock to be a good-looking guy with a muscular build and piercing blue eyes. He also seemed to crave acceptance and approval from everyone, but thrived when he was getting attention from women in particular. Rock also thought incredibly highly of himself. Here's a direct quote from him. Since my childhood, I have always believed that I was different, not your average Joe. This was not only my mental impression, but also an anatomical one. So he's essentially saying that he believes that he was well-endowed. So one night while at a dance in a village near Thetford Mines, Rock would meet a woman by the name of Francine Grenier. She very quickly fell in love with him, and on November 11, 1967, the two got married. They would go on to have two sons together, Rock Jr. and Francois. According to Rock's father Hyacinth, the union was ill-fated and stormy from the beginning. 
without a real job or any means of bringing in any real earnings to support his family, Rock got into local politics in the early 1970s. He ran for office in December of 1975 and ended up with a seat on the city council. But this didn't last long, as his colleagues disliked him due to his stubbornness and unwillingness to compromise while negotiating. By May of 1976, just one year after he secured the seat on the council, he abruptly stopped showing up to meetings and was eventually voted out of office. It was around this time that Rock also stopped listening to his doctor's advice and discontinued all of the medication he was on for his stomach issues and instead began to self-medicate with heavy alcohol usage. He made meager earnings from selling his wood carvings and the family was now in crushing debt, but Rock maintained to everyone who asked that his business was doing great. This charade soon ended though when Rock's business ended up filing for bankruptcy and the bank repossessed his house which forced Francine and their two boys to move into an apartment. With all the chaos going on in their lives at this time, no one noticed that Rock was starting a fascination with the topic of the occult. Let's get back to February Friday 13th, 1976, the night that Rock met Giselle Tremblay. Now, Rock was married at this point in time, but was consistently straying from his marriage to Francine. In the week that had passed since Rock and Giselle met during Carnival, Rock had been persistent. So persistent, in fact, that on Friday, February 20th, he got into his truck and made the nearly two-hour drive to Quebec City unannounced. He waited until around dinner time and then arrived at her home. Rock was wearing the same suit that he had been wearing on the night that they met and was holding two red roses. But it turns out that Rock wasn't the only one who was stepping out of a relationship. Giselle was actually already dating a man named Dave and had plans with him for the very next day. Five hours after greeting him at the door, Rock was still at her apartment. He entertained Giselle and her roommates with retelling of his life stories, the various surgeries he had had for his stomach pain, and how his childhood had been abusive. They were all sharing a 2 6 of cognac, which Rock drank like it was water. By 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, they were all still awake and talking, and Rock had finished all but a few sips of the bottle of cognac. Giselle let him crash on her couch, and he was still there snoring when she left the apartment the following day to go meet her boyfriend, Dave. When she returned to her apartment sometime later, there was a letter waiting for her from Rock. In this letter, there were two parts that stood out for Giselle. She stated, He said that he thought he was going to love me too much and wanted me to be the mother of his children. Keep in mind that the two had only met each other twice at this point, but Giselle was a hopeless romantic, and something about Rock Terrio made her feel special. Over the course of the next few weeks, their relationship got more serious, and the two had started sleeping together. Giselle felt safe in Rock's arms, a feeling she cherished and had only experienced in her own father's arms. She knew that she was falling in love with Rock, but something was bothering her about him. He loved talking about himself, but seemed to get quiet whenever she asked him questions about his personal, romantic life. This led her to ask, Are you married? Because I don't want any problems. Rock told her that he was married and began to cry. While sobbing, he told her that he was sick and that his wife wasn't taking proper care of him. He had cancer, and she was a bad wife and a bad mother. Giselle's reaction to this admission wasn't to break things off, but quite the opposite. She quit her job at a local department store, and the two spent the summer of 1976 traveling around Quebec selling Rock's wood carvings. At the end of the summer, Giselle found an apartment at Rock's request. It was a cheap apartment in Thetford Mines, and it was a converted garage in the backyard of an old house. It was small with one bedroom, a living room, and a kitchen. By the autumn of 1976, Giselle noticed a change in Rock. He began a new obsession— this time with religion. Specifically, Rock was attracted to the teachings of the Old Testament. Here's a quote from Giselle. One thing he really liked to talk about was the role of women, how women were supposed to be submissive to their men. He would point to a page and say, See, Giselle, that's good. I want you to think a little bit about that. At the beginning of 1977, the Seventh-day Adventist Church came to Thetford Mines for an information session. For those who don't know, the Seventh-day Adventists are a Christian fundamentalist group that emerged in the northeastern United States in 1825 
in response to what they saw as an increasing amount of liberalism and a perceived decline in religious devotion. They believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ known as the Second Coming and place a strong emphasis on biblical prophecy and the study of the book of Revelation. Additionally, they emphasize the importance of health and wellness, promoting vegetarianism, and abstaining from harmful substances. Overall, Seventh-day Adventists strive to live a life of spiritual devotion, healthful living, and an anticipation of Christ's return. In the audience in Thetford Mines that evening was none other than Rock Terriel. One of the Seventh-day Adventist members recalls meeting Rock and said that he struck him as the type of person who could easily become a fanatic. Rock returned again and again to the Seventh-day Adventists. He was drawn in by their belief in spiritual redemption and the impending Judgment Day. Even more appealing was that Rock knew his father would hate that he was straying away from his Catholic faith. So in just weeks of attending sermons, Rock was baptized. Among his fellow Adventists, Rock became known as Brother Terrio. He quit drinking, smoking, and even became a vegetarian to be in line with the Seventh-day Adventist teachings. It was clear early on that Rock was a talented recruiter, and so the church used him to attract new members. However, before too long, one of the pastors, Pastor Pierre Zita, was starting to question Rock's intentions. There were things about Rock that the pastor found to be grating, such as his consistent boasting about his superior education, even though he was an out-of-work carpenter with a 7th grade education. Despite this, the pastor gave Rock the job of going door-to-door around towns with the Seventh-day Adventists, handing out literature about nutrition, health, marriage, and parenting. Rock's marketing skills were undeniable, and coupled with his charming nature, the pastor decided that Rock would be the perfect partner to run the church's therapeutic program aimed to help people quit smoking. Rock was reveling in all the attention his position with the church gave him, and soon enough, fellow members of the church would begin to regret boosting his ego. They were starting to question if giving Rock an audience as well as the ability to lead others was a mistake. In early 1977, Pastor Zita was traveling from town to town to take in new members. It was at one of these meetings that the church held where Rock would meet three young women that would fall under his spell. Solange Boylard, 21, Chantelle Labrie, 19, and Francine Laflamme, 18. When these young women were asked what they wanted out of life, they all seemed to agree that there had to be more to life than working a job you tolerated just to buy a big house and a fancy car. Slowly, they were introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist teachings and thus Rock Terriol. Rock sat with this group of newcomers for hours at a time, and before long, Solange was intoxicated by Rock. Solange was said to be the prettiest out of the group of girls, and also the most skeptical. Solange grew up with an alcoholic father whom she hated, and it was this need to escape their parents and their small-town lives that bonded Solange, Chantal, and Francine. Chantal Labrie has been described as a very delicate and emotionally sensitive person. During her youth, she would frequently indulge in fantasies of being swept off of her feet and nurtured by a handsome stranger. Francine Laflamme struggled with self-image issues, and due to her need to be desirable, she became notorious as a party girl at her high school. There were rumors that she had been sleeping around since she was 13 or 14. So as we can see, these are three young women who are vulnerable in different ways. This made them perfect targets for Rock Terrio and his need to be needed. Rock even went over to Chantel Labrie's family home one night under the guise of giving them a Bible study. He introduced himself to her parents and began telling them that he had seen and done everything in life except murder. Chantel's parents immediately disliked Rock and suspected he was a fraud. This is a quote from Chantel's mother, Victoria. He talked to me about his beliefs for quite a while, and whenever he couldn't answer my questions, he would kneel and chant and go into trances. From then on, I don't think he liked us. He knew we had him figured out. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It wasn't long before Rock started bringing Chantel, Francine, and Solange back to the one-bedroom apartment he shared with Giselle. He told them that they could stay there without even asking Giselle how she felt about it. The three women took Rock up on his offer. They were all attracted to Rock and intrigued by the lifestyle that he and the church offered them. Rock seemed to take an interest in all three of them, asking about their lives and their problems while offering a non-judgmental ear to listen to them. This wasn't selfless on Rock's part. He was basking in the role of being a religious mentor and all the attention that he was getting from the separate women. Before long, four turned into five when Rock brought home Nicole Ruel. Nicole was from the Thetford Mines area and had struggled with addiction using sex work to survive. But with Rock's help, she was able to quit smoking, and before long she was invited to live in the apartment. Meanwhile, a 24-year-old man named Claude Wallette was becoming more and more directionless with each passing day. He was unemployed and dropped out of school in grade 11. Claude met Francine Laflamme at a bar one evening, and after talking for a while about his struggles to find his way in life, Francine invited him along to one of her Bible meetings. Claude took Francine up on this offer and found himself in a session being led by Rock Terriot. As the session went on, Claude understood why as he too became transfixed by Rock's charisma. When Claude was asked later about his introduction to Rock in the group, he said, It sounded like a good idea, like fun. My life wasn't in disorder. I just wanted to do something different and meet new people. Little did I know what I was getting myself into. The one-bedroom apartment that Giselle had rented for her and Rock to live together was quickly becoming claustrophobic as he continued to invite young people to stay with them. In less than 60 days, he had invited six women and two men to live with him and Giselle, all of them young and searching for a sense of purpose and belonging in life. When Giselle was asked to reflect on this time in the apartment, she said, Chantel, Nicole, and Francine would touch each other a lot, stroking each other's hair and giving massages. At first, I didn't mind, but then the girls started to do the same thing with Rock, caressing him and rubbing his shoulders. Oh boy, that I didn't like. When Giselle confronted Rock about her feelings of jealousy, he stated, If I truly loved God, I would open my door to all these women and try to help them. I guess deep down I always had the feeling there was something wrong with that, but my problem was always, who do I believe, God or Rock? And he always said to me, if you don't help these people, Giselle, God will remember. The next additions into the fold were two women named Gabrielle Lavallee and Yolande Guinebert. Gabrielle was a registered nurse who had become unsatisfied with her life after a succession of failed relationships. So the two friends decided to travel to Toronto to attend a Seventh-day Adventist retreat in the Lake Rousseau area north of Toronto. Rock immediately took notice of the two French-speaking young women and directed his attention towards them. Gabrielle was instantly taken by Rock, describing the moment they met as it was as if some kind of nerve agent had been released into the air. She could feel his presence fill the room. She felt that he knew all of her secrets. When he introduced himself to her and shook her hand, she said, I felt something in his palm. It burned my hand, and for a few seconds, I couldn't pull away. I wanted to, but it was as if our hands were glued together. I remember thinking this is a human with a lot of charisma. When Rock found out that Gabrielle was a nurse, he was instantly more intrigued by her. He told Gabrielle that it was his dream to help the community with holistic healing. She felt calm in Rock's presence, trusting him instantly, and they remarked that it was destiny that had brought them together. Thrilled by this latest find... Rock told Giselle all about Gabrielle, the nurse, going on and on about how she would be a valuable asset to them when performing God's work. Giselle didn't like Gabrielle from the jump. She came off as smug 
and acted as though she was better than the rest of the group. But despite Giselle's feelings, Rock continued to seduce Gabrielle into returning back to live with them in Quebec, and Gabrielle agreed. When Rock and his flock returned to Thetford Mines, it was clear that there were some bumps in the road that needed to be smoothed out. Starting with Giselle's growing resentment towards the strangers that had been shacking up in her apartment. Eventually, things reached a boiling point and Giselle left Rock. She boarded a bus heading for Quebec City and went back to live with her parents. But this was short-lived as just days later, Rock called Giselle at her parents' house and said, Giselle, you know in your heart that you belong here with me. I need you. The boys need you, referring to the sons from his marriage to Francine Grenier. And you know how much we love you. You're the first woman I've ever loved in my life. You and I, we have so much to do for God. I can't continue my work without you. Giselle tried to argue about all the other women and how she felt uncomfortable in her own home, but Rock had a rebuttal for everything. Feeling selfish and shameful, Giselle packed up her things, bid farewell to her parents, and boarded the next bus back to Thetford. This wasn't the only problem that Rock needed to solve, though. Pastor Zita and other members of the Seventh-day Adventists were hearing whispers about Giselle and all of the other women living under the same roof as Rock. And in the church's view, it was wrong to sleep in the same bed as a member of the opposite sex unless you were married. Rock's solution to his problem was to vacate the apartment they had been living in. He had seen a property with a for-lease sign in the nearby town of St. Marie. The ground floor had a commercial space and the second floor had several bedrooms. Before the big move, Rock had taken two more people under his wing. 24-year-old Jacques Giguer and his wife, Maurice Grenier. Jacques' brother had died in a horrific machinery accident on their family farm, and this led to Jacques plummeting into a deep depression. His life had lost all meaning, and this led Jacques and Maurice to search for meaning elsewhere. They began exploring the world of spirituality, and their encounter with Rock was life-altering for them. Jacques recalls, I had never met someone with so much self-confidence. I believed and wanted to believe what he said, referring to Rock. Rock decided that he would transport his group and open a clinic together. Setting up this clinic was a happy time for the group. They had shared a sense of purpose, and even Giselle was starting to come around. During this time, Rock decided that to reinforce the idea that all of them were equal, they would begin to wear similar outfits. Outfits that would symbolize the rejection of modern social norms. They all wore ankle-length cotton tunics. The women's were green, and the men's were beige. Rock's was dark brown and made to look similar to a monk. Rock also outlawed bras for women. Now you might be wondering what exactly was going on in the group's clinic that they were running. Well, they were running stop smoking sessions, making sure that there was always Seventh-day Adventist literature stocked in the clinic as well as natural foods. People would walk in looking to solve various problems and were prescribed expensive organic foods, vitamins, and supplements, and then given books on holistic healing to read. From the outside looking in now, we would think that this is all a bit preposterous, but at the time, locals were seemingly supportive of this clinic. Some even volunteered to help and generously donated money to the clinic. Among those who donated were the newcomers Jacques and Maurice, who sold all of their possessions and gave Rock the proceeds. They even bought a Ford Econoline van for the group to use. While they were in St. Marie running the clinic, two more women would join their group. Maurice Lambert, and Josie Pelletier. They both announced to their parents that they were dropping out of school and going to work at the clinic. Giselle once again started experiencing feelings of jealousy as more and more women surrounded Rock. She knew that nothing nefarious was going on, but she was keenly aware that all of the women were infatuated with Rock. Giselle tried to fix this issue by proposing to Rock just before Christmas in 1977. The two would eventually marry on January 8, 1978, just a few weeks after Giselle's proposal. But it wasn't the day Giselle had dreamt of. As the group departed the church after the ceremony, Rock talked and laughed with the other women during the five-hour drive as Giselle lay sobbing on the mattress in the back of the van. She felt rejected by him and became suspicious that the marriage wasn't genuine and was simply a way for Rock to be taken more seriously by the Seventh-day Adventist church as they were the ones who were supplying the products that they sold in their clinic. Without the church, 
they'd have no business. The parents of the young adults who had joined Rock's cause were no doubt worried about their loved ones. Maurice Grenier's parents in particular were so worried that they went to the police to see what could be done. The cop assigned to the case was Silvio Barry. He drove to the clinic to check things out and was greeted by Rock himself. Rock was overtly friendly towards the police officer, offering him coffee and showing him around the clinic. As weeks went by, Officer Barry became aware of Rock owing multiple people money, but this wasn't enough for him to do much as he hadn't witnessed any evidence that Rock was forcibly confining any of his followers. The young adults had every legal right to leave their lives and start anew. But in March, Rock took in a woman by the name of Geraldine Gagné Eau Claire, who had been in a hospital in Quebec City where she was receiving treatment for leukemia. Rock had been able to convince Geraldine's husband that he could do a better job than the doctors who were, quote, using too many drugs. He promised her husband that he would cure her by using health foods. Here's what Geraldine's brother-in-law, Eddie Eau Claire, had to say about the situation. I'd visited her in hospital, and she seemed to be doing well. Three or four weeks later, her father told me that she was in Terrio's clinic in St. Marie. Her father told me that he had recently been to see Geraldine, but Terrio would not let him in. She died that day. The whole time Geraldine was in there, he would not let her own father come in. I was told that Terrio tried to heal her with grape juice and other natural products. To think that she more or less died in Terrio's arms makes me sick to my stomach. The police did investigate Geraldine's death, but couldn't find enough evidence to prove that Rock was directly responsible. Rock told his flock that he went to Geraldine's room and brought her back to life when he kissed her. When they asked why he hadn't been able to save her, Rock replied, when God wants people, he takes them. It was Geraldine's time. Geraldine wasn't the only terminally ill patient that Rock brought in. Gabrielle Nadeau was 19 and suffering from multiple sclerosis, and Rock had convinced her parents that his holistic therapies would be far more successful in helping her than all the fancy equipment and degrees that doctors had. It was a month after Geraldine's death in the hands of Rock Terrio that the Seventh-day Adventist Church voted to oust him from their congregation. The fallout with the church coincided with a time when his relationship with Giselle, his own spouse, was deteriorating. According to Giselle, he exhibited minimal physical affection towards her following their wedding day. They rarely had sex, partly due to his late-night conversations with other women that kept him awake until the wee hours of the morning. Giselle said, I think he only slept with me to shut me up. I don't think he even liked me. I made love to him the way you would make love to a fridge. But in the spring of 1978, Giselle announced she was pregnant with her first child. However, it wasn't a joyous occasion. Instead, she told Rock that she was tired of having to share her husband with the others. She threatened to leave and return back to her parents in Quebec City, saying, I don't want to live with all these people, all of your rats. Rock responded by punching Giselle in the face, leaving her bleeding from the mouth with a swollen face. It was 48 hours later when Rock finally permitted Giselle to leave the room that he had left her in. In early June of 1978, as a result of the church kicking Rock out of their organization, the clinic was suffering due to the loss of materials and their products being provided for them to sell. Rock was faced with a decision. Could he continue his work at the clinic, or did he need to pack up and move? Factoring into this decision-making was the growing list of folks that Rock owed money to, as well as the scandal of a woman dying in his care. After weighing his options, Rock decided on his own that it was time for the relocation of his group, now 20 strong, comprised of six men, 12 women, and two children. They all gathered their belongings and hopped into the Econoline van, which had now been painted blue and white with the name of the clinic on the side of it. Rock explained to his group that the end of times was to come true on February 17, 1979, but not to worry, because God had appointed Rock as his minister and that he and his followers would be among the new society that would start God's new reign. In order to begin this new society, they needed to find a place in nature where they could live unbothered by the drudges of modern society. So, three days later, the group began the hunt for Rock's promised land. And they found it near Lac Sec, or Dry Lake, 
The land was a four-hour walk to the nearest road, so it was incredibly remote. Rock named his promised land Eternal Mountain, and the group set out to begin making it their home. In the first weeks of settling in, they were living out of tents and going back and forth to their vehicles to bring in their supplies. They were waking up at 5 a.m. and working well past sunset each and every day, doing extremely difficult manual labor, cutting down trees, and building an octagonal log cabin. Jacques and Claude were tasked with digging a well in the middle of the cabin with a pickaxe and shovel, and when they hit water, Rock exclaimed, it was a miracle. During these strenuous weeks and months, Gabrielle Nadeau, the woman with multiple sclerosis, was living in a tiny tent and being taken care of by Rock's followers. Rock himself didn't do any of the hard work, explaining that his cancer made it too dangerous for him to assist. Adding to the brutality of this work was the fact that Rock was forcing them to ration all of their food so they were suffering from malnourishment. And even worse, if anyone stepped out of line in the eyes of Rock, they would be further punished by receiving an even smaller helping of food. It was September when their settlement was finally deemed finished. It was rustic, to put it kindly. The floor of the cabin was round slices of wood cut from stumps, and the ceiling was haphazardly put together using birch logs that were coated in moss. The cabin was a single room boasting a kitchen, a fireplace, a well, and a dining table. The commune slept in bunk beds around the perimeters of the cabin, and the only privacy given to them was in the bed sheets hanging from the ceiling. To celebrate their move into the wilderness, Rock gave all of his followers new biblical names, and he gave himself the name Moses. This all became too much for two of Rock's followers who opted to leave the commune around this time. Yolan, who joined with Gabrielle the nurse, fled the group back to France, and another man left with his wife and child after having given his life savings to Rock. Rock made sure to lecture the remaining followers that returning to the world of the dead, aka modern society, would make them evil. Even speaking about happy memories from their time with their families in what Rock considered modern society was forbidden. The commune members were forced to only say negative things about their loved ones who weren't among them in the wilderness. The combination of hunger, sleep deprivation, and ceaseless frenzied activity rendered Rock's followers even more susceptible to influence. We really believe that he was a representative of God, said Gabrielle. But things weren't all bad in the new settlement. There were good times as well. Rock would often entertain his followers with quirky skits, and occasionally the entire group would dress up in costume to act out plays together. They described these times as akin to childhood, laughing, breaking out in song, and shouting without any inhibitions. Later in the fall, Rock decided that he was being unfair by withholding sex from the other women in his group. This happened after his wife Giselle told Rock that she noticed some of the women were harboring feelings of loneliness. Days later, as a result, one of the other women confided in Giselle that she had had sex with Rock. Giselle was shattered by this, and she ran off into the woods sobbing, but Rock chased her. When he caught up to Giselle, he tackled her to the ground and began choking her while stating, My name is Moses, and I am your master. You will obey me. If you don't do what I tell you, the Lord will crush your skull. He then told Giselle that she could go that way, and he pointed his finger into the wilderness, or that she could return back to the camp. Giselle opted to return. On November 18, 1978, an event that would forever change society's perception of cults occurred the Jonestown Massacre, and Rock followed the story in the news intently, but he wasn't the only one who was captivated by this event. The entire world, including the Gaspé area in Quebec, was all of a sudden hyper-focused on cults or any organized group that resembled one, and before long, the media were falling over themselves to speak to the man in the woods who called himself Moses. The parents of Rock's followers' concern skyrocketed after the mass suicide at Jonestown, and so on December 11, 1978, four police officers intercepted Rock as he was making the trip to Quebec City to be interviewed on a Radio Canada show. While the officers didn't have enough to arrest Rock, he didn't want to cause a scene, so he went with them willingly. The police wanted to put Rock through some psychiatric testing at the hands of Dr. Reynold Cote. 
Rock denied being the leader of his group, instead convincing the doctor that the commune abided by a democratic way of life. The doctor wrote a three-page report on Rock Terrio where he declared him as being of normal intelligence and more than agreeable, but potentially suffering from schizophrenic hallucinations. Here's part of the doctor's report. Mr. Terrio maintains few relations with his family, it appears, and he informed me that his father threw him out of the house when he was 15. He characterizes his father as a severe man who was also a bit of an alcoholic. He explained that about two years ago he had a vision in which he saw himself getting divorced, opening a clinic to help people stop smoking, and, one day, going to live in the Gaspé. He describes himself as the most passive man on earth and says that he is content to live according to the Bible. He says he is convinced that the end of the world will come in February. By this, he means the return of Christ and the voyage to another world. He says that he sincerely believes in his religion, even though, quote, deep down, I doubt a bit. Concerning his visions, he says that he is convinced that they come from God. He asked if I thought that they may have another cause, for example, a problem with his nervous system. The evidence suggests that he is suffering from a mystical delusion, which has persisted for the past two years. This delusion could be a sign of schizophrenia, but to be precise would require a longer observation. He never showed himself to be aggressive or menacing towards others. And I do not believe that hospitalization is necessary in his case. Furthermore, there is no allegation or legal measure that would justify treating him against his will. He is therefore free to leave the hospital. After his release from the hospital, Rock went back to the commune where he abruptly annulled all of the marriages that existed in the group, other than his own. He then married all the women to himself. Giselle was understandably unhappy with Rock's decision to have multiple wives, but she was at that time in her last trimester of her pregnancy and felt ashamed that she was struggling to provide her husband with the intimacy that he said he needed. She would often hear giggling and moaning from elsewhere in the cabin in the early morning hours and would cry herself back to sleep. The situation ensured that the women were now in constant competition with one another for Rock's affection. They would write him letters in an effort to gain his attention. Here's one from Gabrielle, the nurse. Adored Pappy and well-loved Master, My heart is sliding next to your immense father's heart. You have brought a lot of peace to me. I am happy about the lovely family you have formed and have allowed me to join. I thank you equally for the promise of better days. I feel very good being on your side. To be one with your children and to live simply and fully. It feels wonderful to realize that we are all one body that is not condemned to die. And before finishing, I would like to tell you again what I told you when I had the impression of losing my breath the other night. I am slime, and I am less than nothing, and I beg your pardon for all of the errors of my flesh. I love you, Poppy, and I love you eternally. P.S. Excuse my handwriting. So for context here, Rock also made his followers refer to him as Poppy and Giselle as Mommy. After Rock began sleeping with multiple women at the same time, some of his other pure ways of living started to fall to the wayside as well. He gave up his vegetarian diet, and to the disdain of his commune, he found his love of alcohol again. Rock became a monster when he drank, often keeping his group up entire nights while giving sermons, and if anyone fell asleep, they'd receive a beating from Rock using a club in front of everyone. One morning, one of the pregnant women had an extra pancake at breakfast, and her punishment from Rock was a punch in the gut that broke two of her ribs. Another favorite method of control and violence that Rock favored was treating the children of the commune that weren't biologically his as less than. One of his favorite targets for abuse was two-year-old Samuel Giguere, the son of Jacques Giguere and Maurice Grenier. When Samuel cried, Rock would instruct the parents to strip him naked and roll him around in the snow until his feet turned purple. Maurice Grenier started to talk about leaving the commune, and in retaliation for this perceived slight, Rock instructed her husband, Jacques, to cut off one of her toes with an axe. When Jacques hesitated, Rock egged him on by calling him a homophobic slur and asking, Don't you have any balls? If you want to be a man, you have to learn how to teach your woman a lesson. 
Rock then grabbed the axe himself, threatening to cut off Maurice's toes if Jacques wouldn't agree. Fearing that Rock would do worse damage, Jacques picked up the axe and cut his wife's little toe off. On February 17, 1979, the end of days that Rock had predicted did not end up coming to pass. If his group of followers were less brainwashed by Rock, they may have seen that their leader was a phony, but instead they gave him the benefit of the doubt. Rock told them that, in the eyes of God, one second could be 40 of our years, just as 40 of his years could be one second to us. This was enough to convince the commune that the exact timing of things was too difficult to precisely predict and continued their belief that Rock was chosen by God to lead them. His group's belief in him was the least of Rock's worries, though, as the Quebec Lands and Forest Department had become aware that Rock had built his eternal mountain on Crown Land. On March 17, 1979, two officers arrived at the commune with a court order, but were forced to leave when Rock refused to allow them in. He told them that they would need to walk over my body and let them come with an army if they want. Me? I have God and his army of angels. Sometime later, during a pre-dawn raid, Rock was arrested for obstruction of justice and was forced to undergo a 30-day psychiatric assessment. This allowed the police to bring in the family members of Rock's followers. But to their disappointment, they were not greeted by their loved ones with open arms. Solange, in particular, wouldn't even allow her parents to meet their grandchild. It seemed that Rock's hold over their children was stronger than they had anticipated. So defeated, these parents left their kids in the Quebec wilderness. On April 27th, Rock called a news conference out of the hospital where he was staying for the assessment. He was relishing in the attention that the media was showing him and was even shown reading letters from fans on camera. Once finished speaking, the hospital director, Dr. Louis Roy, chastised the public for demonizing Rock as crazy. He even referred to Rock as Moses. After this news conference, the media and the public celebrated Rock as a sort of folk hero. Rock was subsequently released from the hospital on April 30th, 1979. But things continued to spiral when Rock returned to the commune. Over the summer, he ordered his followers to construct more buildings, turning the cabin into a two-story building, adding more rooms, more fireplaces, and a sauna. They also made greenhouses and a smokehouse. But by the fall of 1979, Gabrielle Nadeau passed away due to her complications with multiple sclerosis. Rock was planning on burying her corpse on the commune, but before he could do so, the police became aware of the situation and flew her remains back to Quebec City so they could conduct an autopsy. The investigation came back with no evidence that Rock was directly responsible for Gabrielle's death. In early November 1980, a young man who was being treated at a psychiatric hospital heard about Rock Terrio and his band of followers, and one day, he wandered off without permission in search of Rock's eternal mountain. He, by his own admission, was at the end of his rope and wanted a quieter, simpler life. He found the commune and told Rock that his doctor actually suggested that he go live with them at Eternal Mountain. The commune allowed Guy Veer to stay on the condition that he would act as a babysitter for the three kids who were not fathered by Rock. Guy would also be forced to live in the storage shed where he was allowed a wood stove to keep him warm, a case of beer, and one meal per day. During the evening hours of March 23, 1981, an incident occurred that we will probably never know the true details of, but the account that Rock and the other commune members gave is as follows. Guy Veer was having trouble sleeping because one of the children, Samuel, was crying incessantly. And this is the same Samuel that Rock liked to target. Samuel's crying allegedly caused Guy to snap and yell at Samuel to be quiet. But this didn't have the desired effect. It was then that Guy Veer supposedly grabbed Samuel by his throat and began pummeling the two-year-old in the face. The following morning, the other commune members discovered little Samuel and began treating his injuries with water, honey, and fruit juice. Samuel was sobbing and shaking and unable to sit upright. His head kept dropping to one side, and the group's nurse, Gabrielle, noticed that there was swelling on the boy's penis. Rock quickly sterilized a pair of scissors and cut into the area that was swollen, allowing urine to flow freely. They treated this incision with a homemade salve. 
According to Giselle, the surgery that Rock had performed was not to allow the boy to urinate, but it was Rock's attempt at circumcising the toddler, and in order to sedate Samuel for this, he was given a nearly pure ethanol mixture that was administered through squeezing a turkey baster into Samuel's mouth. This was enough alcohol to cause alcohol poisoning. Samuel was later found deceased, and the decision was made that the group needed to burn his remains. Here's a quote from Claude, who was tasked with preparing the boy's corpse. I was in such shock, tired, and mentally drained that I didn't even want to think about what I was doing. I just did it, carried the body into the woods just like that to burn it. I guess I also did it to spare Jacques, the boy's father, the agony he was experiencing over Samuel's death. It was all so insane. After they got rid of the toddler's remains, life at the so-called Eternal Mountain returned to normal, at least for a few months. Later that same year, on September 16th, Rock was drunk and decided that Guy Veer needed to face a trial for the death of two-year-old Samuel Jaguer. So after gathering everyone in the main room of the cabin, they unanimously decided that Guy Veer was not guilty by reason of insanity. But hours later... Rock took it upon himself to suggest that Guy deserved to be castrated for his actions. Rock knew that Guy had been complaining of headaches lately and was able to convince Guy that castration was the only way to cure his headaches. Rock prepared to give another surgery on the kitchen table. His instruments were an elastic band, a razor blade, a magnifying glass, and a pair of tweezers. Everyone gathered around to watch their leader perform the surgery while Claude and Jacques were ordered to hold him down. Here's Guy Vier talking about this experience months later when he was questioned by Quebec police officers. They asked me questions about what happened with Samuel the night I hit him. Afterwards, Moses explained to me that my headaches could be caused by the pain in my left testicle, and he offered to take out my testicles because I had hit the child and because of what had followed the hitting. He explained to me the hierarchy that existed in the group. In relation to this hierarchy, I was a slave, and following the removal of testicles, I would become a sterile eunuch. I accepted, and I signed a consent form. He made me take alcohol, about two or three glasses, and he installed an elastic band around my genitals. I lay down on a table in the house of Moses. Everyone in the group was there. Moses performed the operation, assisted by the nurse Gabrielle, and I did not feel any pain. After the operation, the nurse took care of me until I was well again. Since that operation, I have not had any headaches, but on the other hand, I do not get hard-ons anymore either. I also don't have any sexual desires. Rock became paranoid that the news of the toddler's death and the castration would leak out of the commune, so he began to beat and torture Guy Veer. Guy Veer eventually escaped, and when he arrived at a nearby town, he told someone that a baby had died on the commune by being kicked by a horse. Due to this, the police again investigated Rock and the cult. This time, they spent a month investigating the death of two-year-old Samuel. At the end of the 30 days, 15 officers raided the compound. They arrested Rock and several others, taking them into custody. They were all questioned in relation to the homicide. After the arrest, police found Samuel's charred remains buried on the property. The remaining children on the commune were quickly removed and placed into foster care. The other commune members gave conflicting testimony. Some told variations of the truth that the boy was murdered, while others tried to obfuscate the crime. What was hard to ignore was Veer's recently castrated penis. Rock stated that it was for health reasons, but the other commune members admitted that Veer had been punished due to Samuel's death. On December 18th of that year, Rock and several others were found criminally responsible for the death of Samuel. Charges were filed for criminal negligence and indignity to the remains. There were a total of 17 charges against seven members of the commune. Rock and Gabrielle were charged with the castration of Guy Veer. On September 29th, the defendants were found guilty on all counts. Jacques and Claude received six months in prison and one year of probation for child abandonment. Maurice and Solange each received three years of probation. Gabrielle received nine months in jail and one year of probation. Rock received two years less a day, plus three years probation. 
Guy Veer was acquitted on grounds of mental insanity and was sent back to the hospital. Rock's Eternal Mountain was bulldozed and completely destroyed by Quebec authorities. Giselle, on Rock's orders, had rented a home nearby the prison, and one by one, as each commune member's sentence was finished, they all eventually ended up under one roof once more. Upon his release in February of 1984, Rock joined the others in the house. He told them that he wanted to return to the bush once more and promised that this time, things would be different. He vowed to never touch alcohol again and thus putting an end to the violence. Rock knew that he needed to leave Quebec in order to live peacefully without law enforcement breathing down his neck. And so, in April of 1984, he and Jacques got into their vehicle and headed west to find their new eternal mountain. Alright everyone, we're going to have to leave it there for part one of the Ant Hill Kids, but don't worry, part two is already up in your feeds waiting for you, so we'll see you there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.